You're listening to Inclusive AF with Jackie Clayton and Katie Van Horn. All right. Welcome to the Inclusive AF podcast. This is Katie Van Horn, and I am missing my sidekick, Jackie Clayton, right now. Um, She is MIA. If anyone knows where she is, if you could send her our way, we need to find her. Um, But we have a very special guest today. And so hopefully Jackie will be joining us shortly here. But I want to introduce you to um, the guest that we have today, who is an amazing author and has a great story to tell. So Will, thank you so much for joining us. We have Will Shelton here today. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm great. I'm grateful to be here. Um, My name is Will Shelton. I'm an author of the new book, The Silent Agreement. I'm also a um, Black consultant for Global Brands, a Black culturalist, a father, a grandfather, (laughs) and a husband for 30 years, 30 consecutive years, you know? So so I'm all those things, you know? Um, You know, I'm like a multi-trifecta type of a person, you know? (laughs) That's awesome. Well, well, thank you. Thank you for joining us. And, you know, I I have read the book. So first off, if you, we will put this in the show notes and put a link in for the book, but if you have not go pick up the silent agreement by Will Shelton, it's awesome. And the reason why I personally really enjoyed it. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit before we got recording, but Tell me a little bit about what inspired you to use the boxing metaphor to write a book about DNI. <laughs> yeah, um, it's cool because I'm really a sports fanatic, um, a sports aficionado. I follow, you know, boxing a lot. I've, I've been, I'm like an unofficial boxing historian. And, you know, boxing is like it's a metaphor for life. There's a fight in life for everything. You're fighting for your business. You're fighting for your marriage. You're fighting for different positions. So boxing is just a good metaphor for life. It kind of explains the world in a way, you know, life is a fight for territory. And if you don't fight for the territory you want, the territory you don't want will automatically take over. That's you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, but really um, the, the book kind of begins with a Mike Tyson story. A lot of people know who he is. And in the eighties, he was in his prime and, you know, He used to knock out most of his sparring partners, but every once in a while, he would get one that he couldn't knock out. And, you know, because the book is called The Silent Agreement, an illusion of inclusion, Mike would resort to holding and clinching and trying to take a break. And he was kind of submitting to something. His trainer, Teddy Atlas, told him, Mike, you got to stop making a silent agreement because one day you're going to get a guy who's not going to sign the contract. And Katie, this is what happens in corporate America. Blacks that get in, they usually find out the hard way that the other side won't sign the contract. But what happens is they don't stop fighting for those top positions they start fighting with less intensity and they start throwing don't hit me punches. Katie, those are the punches you throw when you're fighting not to lose instead of fighting to win. And there's a difference. What happens is they just start fighting with that kind of mentality and they're in survival mode, just waiting for the conflict to be over. And a lot of times what happens is they turn into psychological contortionists, twisting themselves in knots for the illusion of inclusion. 
Absolutely. And it, thank you. Um, you know, that was obviously my first question was kind of what was the, you know, what was the title of the book, but you talk about just the fact that, you know, that this, there's this all out war that's going on in this, you know, conversation that there isn't an agreement. And so, you know, black people in the workforce are being put into these positions where it's basically, I won't even call it a token role because the role they're contributing and they're doing great stuff, but they're never allowed to move to a position that's truly powerful. So I would love to hear a little bit about that and hear, you know, kind of your thoughts on that topic. Yeah. What happens is like a lot of times, even in boxing, there's something called step aside money. And what happens is you will have a champion of a division and they'll have a, a perceived threat of the number one guy is a mandatory fight that he needs to fight, but he doesn't want to do that because he's afraid. So what he does, what they'll do is they'll pay that number one contender step aside money so they can fight the number two or three guy that happens in corporate America. They offer you a, a token position. They'll give you a position like here, be the VP of the urban department, you know, instead of going, you know, upward and, you know, you'll be faced with a decision to take that position. A lot of times we do. And then what happens is you end up in the urban, urban purgatory <laughs> forever, mm -hmm. you know, taking those positions. So, um, you know, it's like this psychological contract that's unfulfilled for black high achievers in corporate America. It's a breach of that contract track. And, and a lot of black executives, they just feel like their hopes and dreams have been shoplifted. So what do we do about that? Well, what do we do about it? I think the first thing we do is we have to acknowledge it. Um, everybody, the allies, even black executive, executives, they know it's going on. We've been saying it's been going on, but you can't change what you don't acknowledge. And, you know, another thing is, is that, you know, things will never change until those who are unaffected become as outraged as those who are affected. So first you have to acknowledge those deep-seated attitudes that may even be consciously, not even consciously held, they're subconscious. So it's, it's a deep thing. So it's a deep dive and we gotta be ready, you know, Katie, to, to dive into the discomfort levels because it's gonna be uncomfortable to change and to heal and to deal with this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we've had this, I wouldn't even call it a reckoning. I don't know if that's the right word because I think it's just a, a awareness building that has happened in the last 18 to 24 months where people have become more aware of some of the things that are going on in society that have been going on since the beginning of the United States and, and before that. But I, I am curious, you know, your thoughts. I, I want to go back to that don't hit me punches. And I want to go back to that concept because I want you to explain that a little bit more. And I want you to explain kind of, again, how that plays out in corporate America, because I think that's part of the, well, it's part of the problem, obviously, but it's also part of the, how do we get to, how do we move forward and how do I get to a better place in this situation? So would love to hear more about that, like yeah, that concept. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing. It's more psychological, like every, like a don't hit me punches where first you get nowhere until you get real. So we have to get real and we have to get real, real here. So um, don't hit me punch, you're holding back. You're not really pushing forward 
with the conviction because the title of the book part of it is called how to fight with conviction against and avoid the broken promises and the broken culture the culture is broken so you're fighting a broken culture so you have to understand as a black or brown executives as soon as you walk in you'd have to be prepared for the quote rocking of the boat because there's this perceived rocking of the boat is there really a boat to rock um both sides you know act like they don't want to you know deal with this especially the white counterparts you know they'll be evasive they'll um in the book i have another chapter called bobbing and weaving there's a lot of bobbing and weaving going on and being elusive about the truth and about acknowledging what needs to be acknowledged so those changes could be made so black executives a lot of times they go in there feeling inferior when you feel inferior you throw don't hit me punches when you have that fear of being labeled the angry black man or the angry black woman you have that fear of being demoted you know from your position so you hold back and you throw don't hit me punches because you fear the consequence that could happen and i i think that's something that so many people either don't believe or don't understand the impact of what you just said like the I can't be the one to speak up because I, it will impact me. It will impact me financially. It will impact my career. It will impact all of the things that I'm trying to build as I build, you know, my empire, you know, all, all of the things that each one of us is trying to do and each one of us is trying to build our career. And so you know, I think that's why that chapter, I think really the, the don't hit me punches chapter really resonated because it is that when can I speak up? When can I not speak up? And also the, what is it going to cost me? What's it going to cost me to speak up? And I think that's something that a lot of folks don't understand, especially white people. You know, like, I, I don't think that there, there are a lot of times where I know I've said stuff that my counterpart, who is a black woman would not be able to say. And, you know, so I know that there are those spaces. And so it's just, it's interesting to hear you say that like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's Katie. It's that, it's that asymptomatic brand of racism and bigotry that's under the microscope. You know, it's just like uh, COVID-19 is asymptomatic. You, you it's, it's, Sometimes it's undetectable, but it's there. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit in the book. Um, you talk about Cheryl Grace. Mm -hmm. And so I would love for you to share with our listeners the story of Cheryl Grace and kind of why you brought her into this book and, and kind of a little bit about her story, because I think, again, it's really relevant to what you're sharing throughout this entire story. Yeah, um, well, two, a couple of reasons why I brought her in because I know her personally. Number two, I brought her in because she's a female and there's um, multiple chapters in this book where I wanted to include females in this, not just males, because this book is for everybody. So that's a couple of reasons why I um, included her. <clears throat> but her story, she worked, she did work for Nielsen and Nielsen, she did a lot of the African-American research for the Nielsen data for 10 years. They had this report they put out and she was like the one, the number one point person for that. She traveled probably 200 days a year for the company and all over the country working with global brands. But she ran up against some issues with them within the company and she ended up having to file a suit against Nielsen 
um, for some micro macro aggressions, um, some racism things that were going on in, in her department. I think she ended up getting demoted or they kind of put her in a holding pattern. So um, Cheryl, um, she decided that she wasn't going to sign the non-disclosure agreement. She, Cheryl literally decided she wasn't going to make a silent agreement. And this got out in the press and in the Chicago Tribune. And, and, and it's a story that was, you know, kind of nationwide um, because she wasn't going to make the silent agreement. She said, no, you, you guys have uh, kind of slandered me. You guys have held my career back. You guys are you guys are putting your knee on my neck. So um, I thought it was so powerful and so courageous of her to stand up and not make the silent agreement and to not throw don't hit me punches. And she decided to be a champion. And she ended up set, they ended up settling with Cheryl and Cheryl started a, a, a new business and she's helping young executives now in their careers. So um, by her not making that silent agreement, she, um, you know, she did something that was, um, that had much character. And I think that it deserved a place in this book because it, it was exactly what I was writing about. Absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the interesting part that I, I mean, all of it was interesting, but the story that you shared about her is also that the data was, was there, it, you know, it was there in black and white that these numbers are going down because you're not following what she's telling you to do. And you're not agreeing, you know, she knows what she's talking about, go to what she says, and they did not. And so it's interesting, because I feel like we're in that space a little bit right now, where hey, the scientists are telling us, the data is showing us, we can see it on a, a camera phone, whatever it might be that, you know, we're seeing these things and you see it in black and white and people are still like, yeah, no, mm -mm, I don't. And, <laughs> and so it's- These are the experts too. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you right. know, and usually, you know, when you hire somebody like Cheryl, you hire them so they can tell you what to do in, in business. That's why you hired them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and it's, we actually, um, I've had a couple of conversations recently, and this is something that it's not a new phenomenon. I think it's something that we all know, but the amount of education, the amount of experience, the amount of knowledge that a black woman or a black man has to have coming into a role and how overly qualified they have to be to get the same role that a mediocre white person is going to get and like how that actually impacts the world around us and from a diversity perspective and from an innovation perspective. And, you know, I would love for you, if you have thoughts, just to talk a little bit about kind of that, the unwritten rule, I guess, of you have to be overqualified to even qualify. Okay. Yeah, this, I, I love this question. It's a great question. And, and that's another chapter in the book It's called punching above your weight class. <laughs> that's what black people have to do. Even when we're little kids, a lot of our parents told us in order to get those rewards, you have to work twice as hard to get half the rewards as your counterparts. So imagine like still being productive or outproducing your counterparts with that weight and you're punching above your weight class. It's like you're a featherweight fighting a heavyweight for the title and still winning 
and they keep raising the bar to heights that you can't even clear. We're, we're watching the Olympics now. We see these high jumpers and they keep raising that bar. They keep having to jump over it. So that's what happens to black executives. Even when you get uh, a master's degree, um, you know, you'll have a counterpart that has a white counterpart has a bachelor's degree or high school diploma that gets promoted over you. So it's the battle of internally that you have. It's it's a double consciousness that black people have to have. You know, sometimes what if it's a microaggression or a macroaggression, but maybe what if the person had a bad day and it wasn't racism? You we always have to decipher is that a microaggression of racism or is that just an aggression because that person kid was acting up and they just, you know, said something that was a little off color. So we we're dealing with this double consciousness every day and and punching above our weight class. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Jackie and I talk a lot about kind of the the systems and the systems of oppression and the systems that are in place. And that's such I mean, the chapter where you talk about that, it, it's just so critical to to, again, be aware of, recognize and then also talk about it. And, you know, I think that's the piece that we, we continue to miss is that, you know, there is, as you're saying, you have to have that double consciousness. You have to be aware of it on multiple levels, but then it's also the, what do you do about it? And, and what do you tell that white counterpart about it to make them aware of it as well, that you're dealing with that. So. Yeah, exactly. There's a quote I, will, I love that kind of go, that correlates with that. It's from a book. Uh, her name is Isabella, Isabella Wilkerson is called the cast and and what she says is what we face in our current day is not the classical racism of our forefathers era but a mutation of the software that adjusts to the updated needs of the operating system i want and you to I say just, that again because i like that she said what we face in our current day is not the classical racism of our forefathers era, but a mutation of the software that adjusts to the updated needs of the operating system. So those updates we're getting every night on our iPhone, those updates we're getting, yeah, it's- Yeah, it's the, it's the, it's the notification, it's the push button notifications. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but I think, I, I love that quote because I think it's, it is such a, a well, it's a great way to look at it because I think this is one of the things every time there is that step forward, then there's that adjustment of how do we keep this system in place to keep the oppressed oppressed? Yeah. The how do we shift whatever we need to shift and, and how do we counter that or counter the creation of awareness? And I think we're seeing that in so many different arenas, you know, the media is, such a such a tool that is being used by the powers that be to create this narrative and shift this narrative when it doesn't suit what folks don't want to hear or what they don't want to be known and so it's just it's that quote I think is great yeah it's it kind of goes in alignment even with the voter suppression laws they're creating today like you know oh they say we they say the election was was rigged. So they're going to create these new laws to suppress voters now, you know, and that goes on even probably in corporate America. Like, you know, you, if you want to keep that power structure, 
it, you know, it's, it's a structural thing. It's a culture that's been developed and, and built into this for years and they don't want to let it go with both hands. So they're always trying to create something or, you know, avoid, evade, be elusive about it, bob and weave about it. But now, but now um, it's too hard to do that because you're being called out. Black consumers are looking under the hood. They're doing a 150 point inspection on these global brands and they're voting with their $1.4 trillion buying power. They're saying, look, if you don't hire um, at least 13% of more black executives in C-suite positions, we're not going to buy your product. If you don't have the right depictions of blacks in your commercials, we're, we're going to boycott your product. So they, they have that fear to deal with. And that's, that's a huge thing for these brands and these companies now. Absolutely. And I think it, that is something that comes up and like we, we had an episode a few weeks ago about cancel culture. And I, I, we talked about that during that episode, so we won't go into that during this episode, but you know, I think the buying power piece is something that people sometimes forget mm -hmm. is that that voting with your wallet is something that all of us are able to do. And it does make an impact. Even that one or $2 that you can go spend in your community or go spend in the, that black owned business or whatever it might be that is going to make an impact on them. And it's also going to make an impact over time on the, the big names that we all know that um, are going to space and whatnot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause at the end of the day, you know, these global brands, you know, they stay, they say they stood up in solidarity. My question to them, Katie was, was your solidarity solid or was it symbolic, you know? And, and that's the question they have to ask themselves. So if it's solid, then where's the investment in the black community beyond the, you know, say we, we invested in an HBCU or we showed up um, during Black History Month or Juneteenth. That stuff is symbolic. Even if you took off ancient mama off the box of the pancakes, that's still symbolic, you know? Um, so you have to, if your company's really committed, they have to make DNI a part of its DNA. Like that, make it a part of the DNA. And, <laughs> and I think that's what so many companies are missing the mark on because I think there is this, well, hey, we put out a statement, so we're good now. We, we checked that box and now we can move on. You're like, that's not it. That's not it at all. Um, I want to ask a few more questions about the book, but then I also want to talk a little bit about barbershops. So. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome change agents to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. 
might be surprised to know that not all serial killers are straight, cisgender white men. And the victims of true crime are not a monolith either. She's Wendy and I'm Beth, and together we host Fruit Loop Serial Killers of Color, a true crime podcast. Together we take deep dives into the true crime stories about marginalized and minoritized perps and victims that often go untold. We also provide the context and nuance that these stories deserve. At Fruit Loops, we're serving up true crime with a side of history, society, culture, and some fun. Listen to Fruit Loops Serial Killers of Color on Spotify, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's a good thing. It's a white girl totally knows a lot about. It'll be good. From the book to the barbershops. Yeah, right. right. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So in in uh, the chapter throwing in the towel. So, you know, I think you talk about that, that support system and the not doing it alone. Share a little bit more about that. Yeah, the throwing in the towel. That's a really imperative, critical chapter because um, even people who watch boxing, a, a lot of times you don't understand there's multiple ways to throw the towel in. Usually most people are familiar with the one where your trainer or corner will throw the towel in when you're up against the ropes and you're not answering the punches anymore. So that's one way your, your, your trainer is kind of like your mentor in corporate America. You, you need a mentor, um, that's going to help protect you and to help elevate you and to help you see those blind spots. Your trainer in boxing is the one who tells you between rounds what you're missing, um, the strategies that you need to win the fight. That's what mentors and part of your network does in, in corporate America for you. Now, another way to throw in the towel, Black executives do this and boxers do this, is that a boxer knows that if he just stops throwing punches, the referee is going to automatically stop the fight. So basically, you've submitted by not throwing punches, but a lot of people don't know that that happens. Um, so that's another way for uh, to throw in the towel. And really, when when you're when that trainer throws in that towel, Katie, is to save you from that battle from maybe death or totally getting maimed to the point where you can't have another battle so you want to be able to fight another day that's how you get better in in fighting and boxing and sports and anything you do you fail you lose you have losses you have to come off the mat and you can usually you can come back stronger a lot of times than and overcome what you had to deal with by um, by that loss, a loss can really help you to to get better. And that trainer is there to protect you. And that mentor in corporate America is there to protect you when they throw in the towel for you. Because sometimes you just you just want to keep fighting. You're just heated, and you just want to keep battling. But you may get irreparable damage to your life, to your career. So that's what throwing in the towel is all about. Absolutely. And I think it, it also, you know, I love the analogy because I think, you know, in boxing, obviously, yes, you're talking about the physical um, pain or hurt that, that someone can deal with. But I think in corporate America, there's that piece too. your mentor, that board of advisors, whoever that group of folks is that is helping you, guiding you and kind of has that bird's eye view or has that different view than what you have. 
that's able to say, you know what, no, this is not the right path, or this is not the fight to get into, or this is not the thing to do right now. And so helping you and kind of guiding you in a little bit of a direction at times when you maybe can't see all of the different things that are going on and, and you're not able to, to discern what's happening. Cause like you said, your, your head's in the game, you're trying to, you know, just keep going, keep punching, keep throwing those punches. So it's such a, a huge thing. And, and, you know, the other thing I want to add to that is that look, black people, they're always, you're always looking over your shoulder for the pur- purveyor of evil. And there's, in corporate America, there's like what I call emotional war criminals that are there to try to break your spirit and maim you. So that that's really what's going on. You're dealing with emotional war criminals and that shaved years off your career. It can shave years off your life. I, I interviewed a guy named Jim Glover that was an executive in the 1960s and 70s. He told me he had two colleagues that committed suicide behind the PTSD and anxiety and all of the the deep things they went through in corporate America. And I think there's, you know, that's examples that you have. And I think there's probably more that we don't know about. And I think we're seeing that rise in kind of the mental health conversation and looking at this from a different perspective of it's not just, hey, I go to work and it's hard and it's hard work, but all of the other, you know, swords that are being thrown at you or, or whatever you want to call it that are coming your way. Those, you know, what's a good analogy for boxing. That's like those unseen blows or the below the belt, the yeah, below the, the belt. Below, yeah, the below the belt. <laughs> there you go. Those that are coming at you when that you don't see or that you don't know are coming. And so how do you kind of, how do you deal with that? So um, again, folks, if you have not read this book, go out and buy it today, the silent agreement by will and we're going to shift now because I want to talk about barbershops and marketing and all kinds of other fun stuff. So, <laughs> so I would love to just hear, how did you get started in barbershops? Wow. Yeah, that, that's, it's an amazing story. Actually, I had just got married and I got laid off from this job. And I, I think my daughter was one years old at the time and I was looking to get into something else and I wanted to own my own business really. So I went to the salon with my wife to get her hair done. And the stylist asked me, have you ever thought about doing hair? And I said, no, I never thought about doing hair. I don't know much about it. And she told me a little bit about, she said, well, it's your own business. She said, women love guys to do their hair and this and that. And I was like, wow, I didn't know that, you know, that kind of thing. So about three months later, I just enrolled in school for hair. And um, I just kind of took it on like my life depended on it because the life that I wanted did depend on it. So so I ended up owning my own salon for 10 years and I did men and women's hair. And in that, while I was doing hair, um, we talked a little earlier and I was telling you how there's just a conveyor belt of conversations that go on all the time in the salons and barbershops. It's always been this sacred space. It's always been a safe space, especially for for black the black community. It's kind of generational, and um, we've always uh, talked about movies and films. So clients would ask me; they would say, "Will, what um, movie should I see, or what song was that playing?" And I would tell them, and they would say, "Hey, I'm gonna go buy that album right away as soon as I leave here." Um, and and also, you know, uh, you know, as a stylist, and that that kind of um, um, relationship, a stylist can get more out of you in 15 minutes than a therapist in 15 years. 
So you're always sharing. Share way too much in that chair. Yeah, yes, exactly. And that's what I was telling you is that we call that the immunity in the community because it's all confidential. It doesn't go in. It stays right there in that chair. So basically what I did was I said I had an epiphany. I said, wait a minute. I'm helping these entertainment companies promote their projects through my shop inadvertently. And I think they should know about it. So I put a proposal together. I didn't know anybody at the studios or record label. I had no relationship, but I told myself if I have nothing, I have nothing to lose. And I wasn't going to let fear hold me back because fear is just false evidence appearing real. So, so I, I sent the proposal out and then probably in about 30 days, I started receiving free CDs and movie passes to give away. <laughs> And that was the birth of willpower integrated marketing. And today, fast forward 25 years, I have a network that I've built up of over 100,000 black beauty shops and barber shops all across the nation. That's amazing. Um, so first off, congratulations. Congratulations on the work that you've done there. Because I mean, the I don't know how you came up with that, like that, just the concept alone is brilliant. The idea that, yeah, I mean, if I'm here, I'm here all day cutting hair, I'm doing, you know, and having these conversations and having this community and, you know, what else can I give them? And also how can I, you know, what can I get as well at the same time? But, you know, the give to the community that you're doing in that to say, here are some great places or something that maybe you haven't heard before, a, a new musician, a new whoever. So that's such a crazy, like, it's just great. I love that you did that. And I love that you have that community. What, what, what has been the biggest um, kind of aha for you over that time frame? Because I think that's obviously there's probably 20 million that you can <laughs> rattle off at all, all at the same time. But what are those ahas for you of things that you've learned kind of in doing this work over 25 years? I think the biggest thing for me was that I, I didn't know how valuable the black barbershops and salon was beyond like just doing hair until I started doing hair until I started my company and understanding that these are incubators of culture. These, the salon, the barbers and the stylists are cultivators of the culture. You know, Black people are outsized influencers and they redefine the cultural norm all the time. And I believe they're redefining the cultural new normal. So th this was a huge blind spot for not only stylists that work there, not understanding it, but for the global brands that I work with now and understanding that I, I think at the time there, when I started this in the 90s and mid 90s, uh, America wasn't as brown as it is, but now because it's such multicultural, my business has picked up tremendously, and especially from last year too. So just understanding that that these companies needed a, um, a brand like mine to come along and to help steer and navigate their um, marketing strategies. I think I was really a marketer disguised as a barber the whole time. <laughs> really, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and I think that um, the other thing is, that I think it's so such a great thing because I learned that the that barbers and stylists, people just think of them as cutting hair, but they're really innovators. They're trailblazers. They're the gatekeepers of the community. They're the trendsetters. They're the ones who people trust. And they're in a, and then you're in a trusted environment. It is so deep, you know. So 
I, I learned all the, all those different things about the community, about what the barbershop represents, what the salon represents. Um, I'm actually um, working on my second book, and it's going to be about a little bit about the black history of the black barbershop and salon. <laughs> That's awesome. That's very, very cool. And when will that be ready to, that to be, be read? Yeah, maybe 2023 or something like that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you got some time. Give yourself some time. That's great. That's great. So when you think about, you know, the work that you've done from a, from a marketing and, and just an innovative marketing concept, honestly, like, cause I, I would imagine no one else was doing this when you started this whole idea. And when, and probably even now today, mm-hmm. it's still very innovative what you're doing and that you're driving new music, new ideas, new, you know, just new brands, new everything into these barbershops and into these communities. And then, like you said, they're trendsetters. They're the folks that are, are saying, this is the new cool thing to do or listen to or whatever. How do you, how do you decipher what are those things that you're going to say yes to and the ones that you're going to pass on? Um, it's, it's weird because it's kind of almost limitless. I mean, whether it's a financial institution, because a lot of Blacks are under underbanked, underinsured. Um, I just worked this year with, uh, um, with the pharmaceutical companies, the government in helping with a COVID treatment that was, it was a monoclonal antibody and they needed, you know, a lot more blacks and Latinos needed to enroll in these studies so that they know how the reactions are going to be on us as well as everybody else. So they hired my company to use the barbershops and so as pillars of health to educate the community about that. So, you know, there's a lot of high blood pressure issues and diabetes and health issues. So they're being used that way as well. Um, I I work with another company to help spread the word about um, vaccine awareness and information and the facts about it in the shops. Um, You know, it's such a trusted environment. Um, You know, I I worked with, uh, collaborated with uh, the Coming to America movie, and I was, we talked earlier, I'm working on spearheading the Barbie and Beauty Shop uh, campaign for the Aretha Franklin movie, Respect, that comes out August 13th. <laughs> that's awesome. And, and I think that's the part that I think is so fascinating is that the, the work that you're getting involved with, it is groundbreaking, and it's also very relevant and very much, you know, with the times. And I, it's, you know, obviously Jackie and I talk a lot about recruiting and how do you get more folks from underrepresented groups into corporate environments, into leadership roles, et cetera. And, you know, I will keep it a secret just between you and I, and if you're listening right now, um, press mute or just hold off because we're going to trademark this, wait for it. Um, it's almost like we talk about sourcing quite a bit because there's this whole broken pipeline conversation of, oh, well, we can't find black talent. We can't find black engineers. We can't find you know, fill in the blank. And so, you know, even using the barbershops in that frame, think about the talent that you could find or that you could talk to and, and kind of source from that maybe has not been tapped before. So don't tell anyone, just you and me, we'll figure this out. (laughs) We'll make this a plan. (laughs) So um, go ahead. I was going to say, that's what I talk to companies about all the time is developing a pipeline. Um, you know, instead of just going to universities to look for internships, they should go all the way back to JCs, high schools, junior high. We talk about financial literacy, but we need to be talking about career literacy for these young, talented, gifted 
black uh, youth out here. And it's just like in baseball, they have a farm team, they have a minor league, develop a minor league. And then, you know, 10, 15 years, you won't have to be talking about, we can't find anybody invest. And then instead of just investing for scholarships for HBCUs, what about scholarships for Barber and Beauty College for these kids as well? Mm-hmm. Right, right. No, I mean, I, I think it's, you are spot on because I think that's the thing. I think so many of, we have such a narrow view of how we should think about some of this stuff and how we should be focused on this stuff. So I love that. So um, I have I have one question and we, we ask this of everyone, obviously we wanna know kind of, What's next for you? What's going on next? And then I also want to ask you kind of how everyone can get a hold of you, but let's start with what's next for you. What's, what's coming down the, the pipeline? Uh, well, I th- what's coming down for me, I think is like, uh, I'm you know, work outlining a couple of new books that I want to release. Um, there's a follow-up to this book, the silent agreement in a, a couple of years, but that's, that's what I'm working on possibly a podcast for it to um, deal with black executives, some content, you know, it's always about the intent behind the content that you got to get to. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and I'm working right now, you know, I'm working um, with um, MGM studios or, or on the Aretha Franklin movie. There's some um, major television networks that I'm working with now for their, a couple of fall shows that are getting ready to come out as well. Um, and I'm just continuing to like, innovate and and evolve my network of barbershops like like you know i'm developing like this network within the network now but it's it's something special and it's something to help the clients and it's it's a great solution for them and it's a great answer for them and for the community at large i just want to really help elevate you know young minorities to find those positions in corporate america that they don't even know they have the option to get into you know, they just don't know. They'll they'll be on Instagram posting all day, but they don't know that they could be a marketer for Instagram. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> those right. types of things. You, you know, so I'm I'm working on on a on a few initiatives like that. Um, you know, you I can be reached at um, uh, willpowermarketing.com. Uh, if you want to try to uh, you want to purchase the book, you can go straight to Amazon, but you can go to the website. Um, the silentagreement.com is the website for the book. Um, on my IG, it's I, the letter M, willpower with one L. I am willpower. You can direct message me there as well. Awesome. Last question for you. How do you recharge your batteries? Wow. You know what? I think probably it would probably be by, by working out, by lifting weights. Um, that's one way I think not only do I work out, but I work in, it's a working in too. It's like a gymnasium to work out those things that were going on in your life. (laughs) (laughs) And and there comes the energy. Get it done. Get it done. That's awesome. Well, Will, thank you. I truly, truly do appreciate you you joining us today. And um, I'll, I'll yell at Jackie for both of us after this, um, but uh, she'll, she'll make it up, for you, up to you somehow. Um, right. Thank you for joining us. We truly appreciate it. Go buy his book, The Silent Agreement by Will Shelton, and that's Will with one L. Um, thank you, sir, for joining us today. And thanks everyone for listening. This is the Inclusive AF Podcast. I'm Katie Van Horn, and we're missing Jackie Clayton, but she's here soon. So thank you. Have a great day.
Hi, my name is Sara, and I want to tell you about my podcast called Can I Offer You Some Feedback? I'm a business consultant and executive coach with over 20 years experience in change management, leadership development, and naturally providing feedback to high performers. My podcast is for those of you who have a complicated relationship with feedback, whether giving, receiving, avoiding, or seeking. Feedback is essential for our development. In each episode, you'll hear from real people across industries with their ideas, perspectives, and best practices on feedback. I'll also be sharing business bites with you, simple explanations of organizational tools, management techniques, and leadership philosophies that will help you and your businesses thrive. You can listen to Can I Offer You Some Feedback on your favorite podcast app or learn more at evergreenpodcasts.com.